Our sermon passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And as you obviously know, we continue in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we are still at the very beginning of it. And the passage today is what some have described as, as the entrance into the main body of the sermon. Again, Matthew five seventeen to 20. This is God's Word. Listen to it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray this morning that you would help us to feel the full impact of the words of the Lord Jesus. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us not to seek to squirm out for under, from under the weight of which he speaks. We pray, dear Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and minds to know what Jesus says here. To the end that we would glorify your name and cause others to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you will remember that just over a year ago, we began a sermon series through the book of Galatians. Paul's letter uh, to those churches in the, the area of Galatia. And you'll remember that one of Paul's teachings that was emphasized over and over again during the eight months that we took to cover this book was the believer's freedom from the law. Now many people in recent years have tried to point out this a perceived inconsistency between Paul's teachings and Jesus' teachings on the law. And often they'll hold up, they'll hold up the book of Galatians in one hand, they'll hold up the teaching that Jesus presents to us this morning in these verses in the other, and they'll say, these two things do not fit together. Therefore, Paul must be wrong. And so you will see people, in effect, take a knife to Scripture and cut out a portion of it. But if, as Paul says in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And if Paul's writings were already considered to be Scripture by the Apostle Peter, as he says in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 16, there can be no contradiction between what Paul says and what Jesus says. Because even though Paul is the human author, even though Matthew was the human author of his gospel, the divine author, the ultimate author of all Scripture, 
is God himself. And in God, there is no contradiction. In God, there is no inconsistency. Well, as we saw when we went through Galatians, the main issue that was going on there was that Judaizing Christians were making the keeping of the law a requirement for salvation in Christ. In other words, if you didn't keep the law, and specifically in this case, if you were not circumcised, if you didn't abide by the food regulations, then you were not saved. But what does Paul do once he deals with the law? Once he deals with this false notion of the keeping of the law being necessary for salvation, what does he do? The last two chapters of his book, he gives commands. He tells the people of those churches, believers, how they are to behave. You see, once we've been saved by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we're called to be obedient to his commands. We're not, we're not off free. We're called to be obedient. And we're given the ability to be obedient to those commands by the Holy Spirit. So we're commanded to be obedient as believers in Christ. But we're also enabled to be obedient by the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. Now our passage this morning is closely connected with the passage we considered last week. Where we, where we learned about Jesus telling his disciples that they were salt and light. And this passage is very closely connected to the passages that follow. And one of, the, one of the downsides of having to divide up Scripture in the way that we do in order to make it more manageable is that we sometimes disconnect one passage from another. These are all part of the same sermon. This sermon which Jesus delivered to the people on the mountain. Now you remember that earlier in this chapter, Jesus has just called those who truly follow him, blessed. In verses 1 to 11, blessed are those, blessed are those. He has just described these citizens of the kingdom of heaven as salt and light in verses 12 to 15. And he has just commanded them in verse 16 to let your light shine before men, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the immediate, immediately preceding context for what Jesus says this morning. In our passage this morning, and Jesus' later teaching on anger, on lust, on divorce, etc., Jesus clarifies what he means by good works in verse 16. Jesus is talking about keeping the law. But these works can only truly be good when they are done to glorify our Father in heaven. Not when they're done to bring glory to ourselves. And so here is what I would ask you to think about as we consider these verses this morning. Jesus came to bring freedom from the oppressive requirements of the scribes and the Pharisees, which they added to the law. But at the same time, he showed that the law was even more strict than what the people imagined. Jesus came to bring freedom from the oppressive requirements that the scribes and the Pharisees added to the law. But at the same time that he's doing this, that he's bringing freedom, he shows us 
that the requirements of the law are even more strict than what the Pharisees and the scribes had been telling them. I've divided this morning's passage into three sections to fulfill verse 17. Until all is accomplished, verses 18 and 19. And greater righteousness, verse 20. Again, to fulfill, verse 17. Until all is accomplished, verses 18 to 19. And greater righteousness, verse 20. So first let's look at to fulfill. Now it is possible that already in Jesus' earthly ministry, in the short time in which he's been preaching and teaching, in which he's been going around that region of Capernaum and Galilee, it is possible... Uh, that he has already been accused by religious leaders of trying to undermine the law of God. It's possible that he has been accused of doing things and teaching things which are causing others to cast off the law. It certainly happened later in his ministry, if it hasn't happened already here. You see this in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees saw Jesus and his disciples walking through a field of grain. And as he walked along, his disciples, what did they do? They picked heads of grain and they ate them. And it was on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees came after Jesus. And they condemned him for allowing his his disciples to break the Sabbath. Later in the same chapter, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And he does it on the Sabbath. And again, what do the Pharisees and the scribes do? They come after Jesus. They accuse him again of breaking the Sabbath. And you see other incidents of a similar nature in the rest of Matthew and in the other Gospels. It happens again and again. Well, so perhaps these types of accusations have already been made, or perhaps Jesus is simply anticipating them. But in verse 17 of our passage, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has not come to tear the law or the prophets down. He's come to fulfill them. Jesus will show in the verses that follow that his demands regarding the law are more stringent than others' interpretation of it. His demands, we will see, are impossible to keep. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. But what did Jesus mean by saying that he came to fulfill it? Well, the first thing to note is uh, the phrase law and the prophets. Or in this case, law or the prophets. This phrase is shorthand uh, referring to the Old Testament. It's a quick and easy way to refer to the Old Testament. The Jews in Jesus' day did not regard it as the Old Testament. It was their scripture. It was all they knew. It was all they had. And the regular way that they would refer to it is is the law and the prophet, or simply the law. In other places, such as Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus uses a longer phrase. He says, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And he is obviously referring to the Old Testament scriptures here. So Jesus is saying that he has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament. All of it. It was all written in anticipation of him. Well, this is now the seventh time that the words fulfill or fulfilled have been used in Matthew's gospel. In five chapters, he's used the word seven times. In five of those instances, Matthew says that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy, usually one of Isaiah's. But here in this passage, and then back in chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus speaks of fulfilling the law. 
Jesus is saying that all of the Old Testament, including the law, has a prophetic element to it. The law is prophecy. It prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus. It all points to him, not just the well-known prophecies like Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 53. All of the Old Testament points to Christ and is fulfilled in him. It's not just some of the Psalms like Psalm 22 or 69 or 110. All of it points to Jesus. How is this so? How does the law specifically, those first five books of Moses, how do they point to Jesus? Well, one way in which they point to Jesus is the sacrificial system contained in those books. The ceremonial law. The entire sacrificial system functions as a prophecy for Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system was never intended by God to function as an atonement machine. It wasn't one of these things where you put in a sacrifice and you get back forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of of bulls and goats to take away sins. The true function of the sacrificial system was to point to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he would make on behalf of his people. This is the point. This is the end. This is the goal of the sacrificial system. So when Old Testament saints offered sacrifices to God in faith, they did it anticipating the true sacrifice of Jesus himself. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross fulfilled ceremonial law. It fulfilled the sacrificial system. And therefore, Jesus, since since he has fulfilled the sacrificial system, it is no longer necessary. It is no longer permitted. In fact, it is impossible now for Jews to offer sacrifices. And it's impossible and no longer permitted for us to offer sacrifices. Who would want to? We have the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. Well, had Jesus come to abolish the law with its ceremonial requirements, his sacrifice would have been unnecessary. If he had come to abolish the law, he would not have needed to die on the cross. But the fact of Jesus' death on the cross, the fact that he was willing to give himself up to become that sacrifice shows the permanence of the law. It doesn't just fade away. It's not simply annulled or abolished. Instead of abolishing the law, Jesus fulfilled it. The law made it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die. And Jesus upheld the law. He gave it the the proper status that it was due by fulfilling it through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus could not rightly be accused of abolishing the law because he would indeed uphold it by his death. Well, let's look now at section 2, until all is accomplished, verses 18 to 19. In verse 18, Jesus elaborates on why he did not come to abolish the law. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades. 
But the word of our God will stand forever. It does not go away. Jesus is saying nothing new here. He's saying that he is completely in line with what the Old Testament has taught. Now the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet is the iota which corresponds to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Yod. Jesus is saying that just as his Father upholds the universe by the power of his outstretched arm, so he upholds the tiniest letter of the law. He will not allow it to pass away. It will not fade. It will not perish. And the word translated dot here refers to a small line at the base of several Hebrew letters. And this little line enables the reader to distinguish one letter from other similar letters that don't have that little line. It's sort of like the difference between uh, the English lowercase i and L. You can see there's a difference between the two because there's a dot over one. Well, Jesus' point here is that even the smallest details of God's word are essential. No part of God's word may fall away. Why is this? Because it's God's word. It is the very word of God. And so we see that Jesus has done nothing but uphold the authority of Scripture throughout his ministry. Even during the time when he was being tempted by Satan, he pointed again and again to Scripture and its authority and its power and its binding nature. No part of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Well, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27 uh, say this. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are made, uh, excuse me, the heavens are the work of your hands. You, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This is speaking of God. God will not wear out. He will not fade away. He does not change. God's word reflects this character of God. This is a part of his nature. And the word is reflective of his nature. He is permanent, therefore his word is permanent. And so we cannot pick and choose what parts of the law we want to keep. We don't have the freedom to do this. And this is the point of what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But to relax one of the commandments, even the least of them, is to break it. No one here wants to be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But Jesus will show in the next section of his sermon on the mount that relaxing the sixth commandment just a little, relaxing it just enough so that you are angry enough with someone to want to kill them, even though you don't carry it out, you're guilty of breaking that commandment. You're guilty of murder, Jesus will say. To relax the seventh commandment by indulging in lust is to be guilty of adultery. The person who breaks or, or relaxes the least commandment will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus says. 
But breaking even one of God's commandments causes us to stand condemned in His courtroom. To teach others to break the least of God's commandment is to be doubly condemned. Jesus says in chapter 18, verse 6 of Matthew's Gospel, speaking about a child, He says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoever teaches someone to relax the least of these commandments, it would be better for them to fall into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck. In our passage, Jesus concludes verse 19 by saying, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus implies that if you do the least of the commandments, you will do them all. If you are faithful in the small things, you will be faithful in the big ones. And by keeping the commands and teaching others to keep them as well, you will be called great in the kingdom of God. Well, let's now look at section 3, Greater Righteousness. This is verse 20. Jesus continues the thought that that he's expounding upon in verses 18 and 19 in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were those whom the people looked up to in matters of religion. They looked to these people. The scribes were the ones who were most knowledgeable in the law. They instructed children in the law. The the best of the scribes were rabbis. They had adult disciples who followed them around. The Pharisees were the most religious lay people of their day. And so both groups were considered to be authorities on the law. They were considered to be authorities on God's word. Both would have been regarded as exceedingly righteous because of their careful observance of the law. They would have been looked upon with esteem by the people. And so Jesus' disciples and the crowds would have been astonished to hear Jesus say, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. How is this possible, they would think? How could I possibly do more than what the scribes and and the Pharisees do? Well, the implication of what Jesus says in this verse is that even the scribes and the Pharisees won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Even they, with all that they do, with all of their adherence to the law, even they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. But what is implicit in these verses is made very clear later on in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. The entire chapter is devoted to his condemnation of their hypocrisy. Now it might be tempting to think that it would be easy to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness based on Jesus' withering condemnation of them. It might be easy to think, well, Jesus condemns them. He says they're hypocrites. Then I can exceed their righteousness. But if you stop for a moment, And if you're honest with yourself, you'll quickly realize that Jesus' condemnation of their hypocrisy is a condemnation of your own. 
It would be easy to exceed their righteousness if we weren't all suffering from the same condition. If we didn't all have the same problem. You see, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of our good works are as filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. There is no one who is good. Not one. The scribes and the Pharisees, in adding adding their own requirements to the law, have only succeeded in making the law appear to be achievable by others. They've added requirements to the law. But it looks like it can be done. They had divided the law into 613 commandments. And they further fenced the law by adding requirements so so that they wouldn't come close to breaking the law. For instance, in order not to break the sixth commandment regarding the Sabbath, they made regulations about how far one could walk on the Sabbath. By limiting how far a person could walk, the religious leaders led their people to believe that they could hold on to it, that they could keep the regulations. They could keep the Sabbath on their own power. That it was actually attainable. As long as I don't pass this line, as long as I go this far, but no further, I'm within the bounds of the law. Well, Jesus, in his teaching here, and his teaching in the coming weeks, he's going to distill the law back to its original state. He's going to separate the true wheat from the chaff that the scribes and the Pharisees have added to it. And in the process of doing so, he's going to show us the impossibility of keeping the law. He's going to show us that we stand condemned Because we are unable to keep even the least of the commandments. You see, apart from Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us, we have no righteousness. There is no righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Apart from his righteousness, which we are declared to have in God's court of law, because of our faith in Christ Jesus, we have none. Because of our inability to perfectly keep the demands of the law, we stand condemned in God's court of law. But because of Jesus Christ's perfect keeping of the law, in every regard, on our behalf, we stand as justified in God's court of law. And when we're justified... When we repent of our sins, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're justified, then we're, con- we're, we're equipped, we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to truly keep God's law. It no longer is a requirement for our salvation. Jesus has kept it for us. He has achieved our salvation, the salvation that we cannot, cannot achieve on our own. But once we're saved in Christ... Once we've been given the power of the Spirit, then we can walk according to everything that He has commanded. But justification and the ability and equipping come only to those who repent and believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. If you do not believe, if you refuse to repent and submit to the Lord, you stand condemned. All that is required of you in order to fully keep the law, all that is required of you 
is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To bow humbly before him, confessing your sins, repenting, and receiving his forgiveness. Then, and only then, will your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for giving us your law. And we pray, O Lord, as, as the psalmist has prayed, that we would delight in your law. But Lord, we recognize that we, that we may only delight in it when we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we know that he has fulfilled it according to all that he has done, according to his perfect obedience to the law. And so we ask, O oh Lord, we ask for those whom you have called that you would enable, that you would cause us, dear Lord, to walk in humble obedience to all that you have commanded. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.